Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it is the 23rd of December, 2011, and I'm here with Audrey Waters to talk about education, ed tech, and the final year wrap-up yes. ideas. Yes, I think this will be our last podcast of the year. So, <laughs> You did add another top 10 list. I did. I'm done. <laughs> uh-huh. You didn't call it number 11, though. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so y- your last top 10 list. Top 10 ed tech startups of 2011. How did you have the time to go through all of the startup companies? Well, you know, this is something that, I mean, I've been tracking on all year. I mean, and I, you know, I, I, I think I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about the series of posts for a long time now. But, um, but in particular, just, you know, all throughout the year, I've met a lot of really, really great entrepreneurs um, doing interesting things. And so when I sort of sat down to focus on some of the most ones that were the most exciting to me, um, it, it took a while, but it, but, um, it took actually a lot of careful consideration. Um, and, but I think I came up with a, a really good list. Of, it is a good list, yeah. even with all of your disclaimers <laughs> about not, <laughs> not being too scientific and not really fully being in the year 2011, but close. Right. Well, you know, uh, this is one of the things that is funny about, you know, the, the technology world uh, in particular. I think that this word startup gets bandied around and you find companies that are still called, a st- I mean, people call Facebook still a startup. Um, and so I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to sort of just limit the ones that I was looking at, the companies I was looking at to ones that were founded or, or launched this year. Cause it's not, I mean, in some ways it doesn't feel fair to compare, <laughs> to fair, compare a company, you know, with sort of two, you know, two employees, a, um, a hacker and a hustler with somebody who's got, you know, raised $34 million in funding. So, Well, so I'm very interested in kind of the scope here. And you're going to talk about some, I think, some really fun startups. But one of the things that occurs to me about the education world is that it's a highly institutionalized buying process. Mm-hmm. So a startup seems to almost have less chance of succeeding in that environment than they would sort of in the general marketplace. You know, is there a degree to which, you know, a lot of the startup activity is actually just going to end up getting gobbled up by big companies? That's that's actually, I think, one of the interesting changes that we're seeing right now, and I think one of the really exciting changes that we're seeing right now in education technology, because I think for the first time there is a, um, a consumer a consumer web market or a market for consumer consumer web apps that would can support a lot more educational content, and whether that means parents and students are purchasing it or teachers are purchasing it purchasing these out of their pockets, um, but it actually sort of bypasses some of that enterprise, um, that old sort of, that old enterprise model. But yeah, I mean, I do think some of these companies will be gobbled up. I think some of the things that they offer are really just features, features that other large Mm. companies could probably add. That's what worries me a little, is that you develop a really cool feature, let's say it's a texting service. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, the resources required to market that into the school uh, ecosystem are so substantial and the scale that's needed is so huge. You know, aren't aren't these ideas just going to get kind of absorbed into other products without the startup companies getting the benefit? I think that um, I I would say that if if some of these large enterprise um, mega education companies were nimble enough and innovative <laughs> enough and actually interested in doing those things, the world would probably be a much better place. I don't know that, I don't know that actually a lot of, 
I mean, I don't think it would be so easy, for example, to peer, for Pearson to buy a company like Desmos, one of the one of the startups that I chose. I mean, I just don't think that that the innovation that I see in Desmos would ever live in Pearson. Interesting. It's a very encouraging vision. I really hope it's true. Although there's sort of this cycle I, I continue to see in my life that maybe we even see played out sort of in the internet of this sort of feeling of, okay, we can all innovate and it's all going to be good and we're just going to get rewarded. And then things sort of settle back down to who's actually got the money. Well, and I think that that's, I think that that is, that money piece is a, is a big question and how um, particularly startups that haven't worked out their funding, um, their sort of their revenue model. Like, how really are they going to make it as a company? It's particularly if they're if they're free to start, and sort of down the road, <laughs> down the road someday they'll they'll figure out how they're going to make money. Yeah, hard. Okay, so launch toys um, and a connection to Seymour Papert. Yes. Wow. This is terrific. Yeah, Andy Russell is great. Uh, he's the co-founder of Launchpad Toys, and they make um, they make an iPad app. They have several more apps sort of in the works, and it's a it's a cartoon sort of a digital storytelling cartoon building app. He's actually a former. Um, he actually worked for an. Uh, I think he worked for Hasbro, but I'll say he worked for a well-known toy maker, and he has an interesting history of thinking about what it make what it means to build. Um, build toys that help kids learn through imaginative play and I think he has an interesting way of thinking about how the how new tools like the iPad and the app market mean that people can build cool tools without having to worry about sticking them in a in a box on a shelf and appealing to um, a different sort of marketing so he's just a he's just a really interesting smart guy who's been building um, toys for a while, and I love their app. I love the Toontastic app. It is one of my favorites, and I think Apple actually chose it as one of their best education apps this year too. You mentioned Desmos and a graphing calculator that I couldn't tell from the story, but does it work sort of on all the platforms? Um, it kind of addresses the BYOD issue. It does, and it's it's you know this is one of. This is one of those examples where, you know, kids are still asked to go out and buy the graphing calculator, you know, once they hit middle school. And this is, you know, <laughs> this is the BYOD that we've already been up to. And, uh, you know, Texas Instruments and some of these companies, they have not innovated at all for years. And um, Eli, the, the co-founder of Desmos, um, he's a double math major, at, um, a double major at Yale, majoring in math and um, engineering. And this is actually not even the main product that he's building. He just sort of built this, built this incredibly cool, free, um, web-based graphing calculator. And you can tell that a math, a math whiz built it because it does all the cool things that really you don't even see in a Texas Instruments calculator. It's very cool. I'm going to uh, juxtapose that story with the Microsoft social network. Uh, uh, because we don't really need to talk anymore about Microsoft social initiatives. But what was so interesting to me was that the Microsoft story leads you to kind of think that, you know, we're really sort of a peak social need you. And, and I kept thinking, you know, things come out of the blue that so dramatically change things. And then here's this graphing calculator. And you think, this is this is one of those things where, We've just been in such a mindset yes. that 
providing this, which is literally going to be free instead of this cost, is such a significant move. There are so many of those waiting for us. Well, I mean, and, you know, you know, adding the social piece to it, too. I mean, you know, the the you know with a with a web-based graphing calculator you can share your solutions you know and you know you can embed your solutions on your on a website i mean it's just really it's exciting so yeah i'm kind of torn because the microsoft story also reminded me that there's a big difference between building systems for people mm-hmm. and teaching people to build on their own and social media feels very much like it's a hacking environment you know, you, you learn to use RSS, you, you cobble together different tools, and you get this wonderful output. And, and yet, I, I worry a little about that sort of same hacking ethos when it comes to something like the Raspberry Pi mm-hmm. um, where, uh, or Scratch, where, where we don't really adopt that widely in education. So we're on kind of a high with the social media hacking, but do, you know, do these products that allow for hacking in education, are they actually going to see any adoption? Well, you know, the one of the things I love about LittleBits, which is another one of the startups on my list, is I think that LittleBits sort of addresses one of the hurdles why we actually don't see more hardware hacking. And that's that I think that there still is, well, I mean, I just don't think that a lot of K-12 classroom teachers have experience working with circuitry in that way. And I think that there's still a lot of... Um, fear, I think, about, I mean, you know, fear about doing, doing certain kinds of hands-on projects like that in the classroom. And I love little bits because it's actually a way to build and work with circuitry that doesn't require, um, that doesn't require a soldering iron. Um, and it, it's not, it doesn't seem like it would be that huge of a, of a sort of a mental barrier, but I think it really is for some people who've never sort of done that sort of thing before. And so little bits, um, there are all these cool circuit boards that you can connect together and they, they work with magnets. Yeah, I loved that. And, and you loved it as well because it was woman owned. Right. And, um, but I, you know, I read the series and I think homeschool market. <laughs> I don't think traditional school, you know, I'm thinking, oh, who's going to actually go out and do that? But I, that's may, that may not be fair. But I also worry that lack of lesson plans and integration into sort of these larger systemic ways of thinking about education, you know, hamper these kind of hack, hacking project, mm-hmm. the potential of these. Um, okay, highlighter. Yeah. H- hasn't this been done about a million times? <laughs> um, I think that a lot of uh, I think that a lot of people are working on various elements um, around. Social reading, for example, I mean, that would be something like Goodreads, where you can let other people know what you're reading and share your favorite passages and sort of have um, uh, like an online forum to discuss a book. Um, One of the things I like about Highlighter is that they've built a little JavaScript. It's just a line of JavaScript that you insert into your website or your blog, and it, it, it allows that sort of margin comment to happen right on the right on the page, um, which is, I really like it in, in an academic setting as well. I mean, I think about, you know, I think about someone who taught, I mean, I taught writing for a number of years, and it's never the comment at the end of the paper that's helpful on an essay. It's the comments that you make, you know, all over the essay at the, in the margins. And I think that one of the things you notice on the internet is you get comments at the end of stories, but you never get sort of you never get sort of a closer reading and a closer way of looking at the tool. Um, Highlighter's building the tool for professors in just that sort of scenario to do 
um, to share and encourage close reading and comments with their with their classes. So fascinating. Is it Selly or Chelly? I I say I think Selly. Okay, so text messaging. What was what do you like so much about Selly? Um, well, I you know text messaging was one of the trends that I chose this year, and I think it's something that. Um, it, I mean, we've we talked about that before. It's sort of the nexus of all of these different things: mobile learning, BYOD, and the and the you know the fact that teens teens text. Um, what I love about this startup is that it has really incredibly amazing technology under the hood. A lot of the startups that have built um, text messaging tools this year have used another company called Twilio, um, and Twilio offers. Um, uh, telecommunications. It's a very simple telecommunications API. In fact, folks might have heard about it. Um, NPR had a story about call in oats the other day. I don't know if you heard it, Steve. It was like, mm-hmm. if you call in this 1-800 number, you can like press one to listen to different, different hall and oats, <laughs> different hall and oats store songs of your choice. But anyways, it's a very simple API that allows you to do all sorts of um, voice and voice messaging and texting texting features. So most people have built built their educational text messaging app on Twilio. And what Selly has done is they've built a completely different um, infrastructure, and it's federated. It has a lot of it has abilities to work a bit like Yahoo Pipes or RSS, even where you can feed in different information and direct it out in different ways. So I just think that there's a lot of interesting technology that can, that's going on in Selly that makes it definitely rise above some of the others in their same space. How fun. And sort of speaking of those innovations that occur that you don't expect, I had that this week with a text messaging app. Um, I, I love text messaging. I've used another app called Heytel for voice messaging. Mm-hmm. And this week discovered one called You Gotta Talk. which is only Android. But the brilliance for me was it fully integrates with your existing text messaging. So it replaces your text messaging app. If you send a message to someone who doesn't have the app, it just sends it as a regular text message. But if they have the app, it then sends through their network. And I was like, wow, now I get it. You know, this whole idea of alternate messaging systems, if if they actually work in combination with your existing one, Brilliant. I'm just stunned. It lets you send pictures or voice audio messages or everything else. But the fact that it integrated with my existing text messaging system, I, I, you know, I was kind of blown out of the water again by the, the innovation in texting. Yeah. No, I, I think that, I mean, I think that some folks are sort of wishing texting would go away, but I think that it's, I think it's actually a very powerful tool that, um, that we're, we haven't, we haven't really invested enough energy in figuring out yet. Partially because I think geeks are already on to the next, they're on to the next thing. But okay, goal book really interested me. Yeah. you know, a way of keeping track of uh, individual education plans. Um, I, I wondered if, in addition to this, there's thought going into students kind of managing their own learning plans. I think that um, I think that that would probably be something that this company could probably tackle in the future. Um, they're a really interesting startup. Uh, Insofar as that uh, that the that Daniel, one of the co-founders, was a special education teacher um, for a number of years, and is also a computer science engineer, and so he he's actually building a solution to the problem that he faced as as a classroom teacher, which I 
I think is, I think is really, there's a lot to be said for that. Um, and it's, at this stage, it's really about working with um, special needs kids and making sure that all of the, all of the different adults that have say over some aspect of a student's um, world can actually communicate easily with each other. And I'm assuming that if that student moves to another school, that the brilliance of that is that data would still be available. Yes, exactly. And parents can access it. And I mean, you know, I just think that things, you know, schools, very bureaucratic um, institution and things get siloed and you'll find that the, you know, um, someone's speech pathologist has never actually talked to the behavior specialist who's never, you know, who maybe once in a while would report back to the main classroom teacher, but certainly people aren't on the same page for an individual student enough. And this tool helps to address that. Yeah, I loved it. And in a world that's increasingly, I think, going to go to individual education plans for every student, mm -hmm. seems like a great foundation for thinking about that. Yeah. Okay, our f finally our favorite, my favorite, <laughs> maybe yours, lesson cast. Yes. Yes. Tell us about it. So I met uh, I met the founding team um, this summer. They actually they actually first pitched this startup at a startup weekend EDU that I attended in San Francisco. Even though the team is from Baltimore, they came out to San Francisco to um, to participate in Startup Weekend EDU. And uh, the minute that Nicole Smith pitched her idea on a Friday night, I knew that um, I knew a couple of things. I knew it was a great idea, but I also knew that sort of if it were me, like I would be on Nicole's, like Nicole's team. She's, she just had such a clear vision um, as a teacher herself about what needed to happen in order to fix what is a, I think, a, going to be an increasingly common problem, particularly as we have more and more TFA type teachers, which is that you're a new teacher, you don't have um, you don't necessarily have someone in your building even that you can turn to for sort of simple simple hints and tricks about how to get things done in the classroom, lesson plan ideas, classroom management skills. Um, and it, the tool is just a very easy way for teachers to sort of share share that kind of knowledge with each other. And it's a, it, and as you make these videos, it's sort of a PD. The professional development is also in making thinking through thinking through making the video as well as a tool for others. I love it because it's crowdsourced PD. Yeah. And that, to me, makes so much sense. Um, and especially when you compare it to kind of the financially structured selling of lesson plans. Right. And these different networks that just never seem to me to, to really hit the core piece of how educators want to connect with each other. Yeah. Okay. So then now the big story, <laughs> moving on from the top 10 ed tech startups, uh, MITx. Yeah. So is, is X now the de facto indicator of a <laughs> replicable, smaller scale something or something? Um, I, that's funny. You know, I, I, uh, this story, this story broke, um, as sort of as technology journalists or as journalists in general sort of are loath to do. There's a, there's a thing you're supposed to do every Sunday night at about um, well midnight on the East Coast, nine o'clock here on the West Coast, you're supposed to look and see what the Wall Street Journal <laughs> st stories have crossed the line because they always tend to like post them 
really late at night on a Sunday, my time. And sure enough, this crossed the wire, um, was crossed, crossed the wire late Sunday night. And I thought, well, I have to, I have to talk to some people before I write up, write up my thoughts on it. But I did go into my Photoshop, Photoshop and I actually took a picture of Vin Diesel with the, with the from the triple X movie <laughs> and thought I'm just going to make a tattoo on the back of his neck that says MITX. But then I, then I realized that it was probably the TEDx was the reference I was supposed to be thinking about, not, not the Vin well, There has been an MITx for years and years, right? Yeah. But is it, a, is it a different beast entirely? I think this is a different beast. I think this is very much on the notion of, a, of well, I don't know. I mean, I think this is, this is, a, new, this is a new initiative. This is, an, um, this is MIT um, sort of taking their, you know, they've been a leader in terms of open courseware. And this is, this is another sort of another stab on their part to sort of try to be at the forefront of what's happening with open education. So they'll be offering a, they'll be offering a certificate for um, people who successfully complete and then pay for, <laughs> pay for the certificate for these online classes that they'll be building, much akin to the Stanford classes, it sounds like. Right. So you pay, you're paying for certification. That's not necessarily a credit or no. it's or a degree. No. But it is it's some form of validation that you actually accomplish some amount of work. Right. Right. Um, and what it sounds like, I mean, and this is something that uh, um, the the Stanford AI class did as well, is it sounds like what MIT is doing is building out um, they're building out an online platform to to sort of run these classes, um, but they're also building out an assessment feature, so an artificial intelligence assessment feature, so that they can easily scale the grading of, um, of course materials, of assignments. It was interesting to think about this because I thought, okay, so if you're in a trust relationship with someone, that kind of credentialing or certification probably is valuable, but it probably doesn't meet the standard for a stranger. Right. So I could, you know, if I have somebody who's in my office and they get this credential, okay, great. That sort of indicates achievement, but maybe not necessarily across sort of regular boundaries for us. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I, I tend to think that um, a certificate and, and MIT says that this actually isn't going to even say MIT. I mean, they want, it's going to be clear that this is MIT X, the, the certificate that you'll get. And, and likewise, the letter that you get from, from participating in those the Stanford class, um, the Stanford AI class was also a letter from the professors. It wasn't a letter from Stanford saying that you that you successfully completed the class. But I have to wonder because of the because of the elite um, the elite stature of those two schools that that will count. I mean, I think that if if you had a job applicant who you know if you if you were hiring if you were hiring an, someone you know and you had a choice of someone with a bachelor's degree from a you know state college, bachelor's degree in computer science, or a letter from Stanford and a letter from MIT saying that they'd taken these online informal classes, I think that they would count. Yeah, I, but, you know, again, maybe it's the suspicious nature of mine, 
but you know, how would you know that they actually did the work and there isn't somebody in India grinding these out and getting certificates in other people's names? That's true. I mean, I, but I think that, you know, I think that that's probably something that you can think about. I mean, I think that that this is sort of raises questions we talked about last week too. Like, what is the value of a of a college of a college degree too? I mean, I think that, you know, I think that we we I think we're starting to question a lot what um, what any of these you know what any of these certifications might mean. So, do you think that MITx should marry the Mozilla Open Badges project, and and then the two will happily create all these children of <laughs> of, of validated. Uh, alternate certifications. Well, th- this is—I mean, I think that this is a this is actually a really interesting development. Um, that's that's different from the MIT system. I mean, I think that it's it is certainly all these alternative forms of credentialing that we're seeing right now. But um, the MIT one, or the, yeah, the MIT one is going to cost money. And I mean, I wrote about this in another story this week. I. I don't know what I think about. Um, I don't know what I think about um, the sort of open open education resources now. The the credentials. Um, I don't know have what a, it, have a have a fee associated have with a them. fee associated with them. Right. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think we're going to really see the story unfold until the tuition bubble pops. Mm-hmm. But when it does, I think it's going to move fast. I think we'll see. I mean, I actually think it's. I think we're on the cusp of it, and I I've heard rumors that we're actually going to see a couple of other very prestigious universities doing a similar move this Interesting. year. Um, and but again, I, I think it's something with the prestige of the, the prestige of those universities too. Like I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure if if a, of a lesser known right. smaller state school could could do this sort of thing, and, and I don't know if it would mean the same. Well, I will say. That for me, um, it probably will open the door to some smaller institutions leapfrogging, meaning if they can figure out how to do this and do it well, that they have a chance to significantly change their stature Mm -hmm. um, if they can produce results that really make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And well, produce results that make a difference is this interesting question, too, because, you know, are we seeing... Are we are we suddenly getting fixated again on the certification piece, and how is that different from producing results? Like, is producing results right. getting grad, you know, graduates or d- diploma people who hold a diploma, or you know, I'm just I think that it's it's going to be a really interesting. I mean, I think next year is going to be really interesting for higher education. Can't wait. Okay, so I read the OER and education inequality story. Uh, very carefully because having been involved in the open source movement for a long time, I've kind of wondered about the impact of especially open source software Mm -hmm. and costs and equality. And I know that the concern here is that um, OER might actually be expanding inequality. I'm going to say I don't think it widens the gap. It just makes the differences more stark. Is that is that a reasonable approach to this question? Yeah, I thought that you know this this is this story has been sort of you know I've been just stewing on this story for a long time and and this is based on Justin Reich's um, research and he's actually looked at um, a really 
substantial body of uh, substantial sort of um, number of students and their use of wikis in particular, and he's look he's looking he's looking at the ways in which different students um, from different backgrounds um, have access to use and use wikis. And this was his conclusion: is that, I mean certainly open open educational resources aren't hurting anybody, but that, that the but more affluent students benefit more um, from them. It's actually um, and it's sort of reinforcing and perhaps even widening um, disparity. I How do you feel about that? I mean, I th I think that I think that there are some really interesting there are some really interesting comments on my story, and I think that I mean I think that one of the things that Jim Groom points out is that these are these are the things that are happening all over the place. You know, this this is something that technology technology helps. You know. With, the, the technology helps sort of widen these divides already. We're seeing these massive inequalities all over the place. I'm not sure we can sort of blame OER, and I'm not sure that's actually what Just Reich is is necessarily doing. But I do think we always we always do need to be mindful about sort of how how are we um, particularly how are we working with technology in the classroom in a way that sort of we're only giving certain ac certain students access to um, you know. T certain students have access to tools, certain students, perhaps like the advanced placement students, get access to better, you know, better equipment and stuff like that. So I think it's a good reminder to always be mindful of those things. Yeah, I worried, again, we've talked about red herrings before. I worried that the whole story was a little bit of a red herring because the inequality is really in the quality of teaching. Mm-hmm. For me, and and not the resources themselves, and if anything, I think you could make the counter argument that, um, like with Microsoft Office and Open Office, there hasn't been a lot of wide adoption of Open Office, but it really drove the price of Microsoft Office down. So I feel like there's sort of another side to the if you're looking at the actual sort of cost, but if the if the core question is usage. That to me was really sort of a teaching issue, and there's mm -hmm. a clear inequality in teaching, because I'm not convinced you need wikis to teach well. Right. You know, I think they do a lot of things, but the but to me the core inequality is, you know, the time and attention a teacher is taking to the education of the students. Right. I mean, and and I think that that's, yeah. I mean, I think that that's something that's um, is, uh, although, well, I don't know. I mean, I think that there are probably ways. It's hard to think. Is is that something that um, proprietary content would be, um, would do the same as open content, or is there something about open content? And the way you can reuse, mix, you know, mash it up, mix it up, um, share it in new ways that actually um, is makes it different than proprietary content. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. So the argument would be that it makes that quality of teaching difference even greater. Right. Yeah. Fascinating story. Okay. So why were you initially so upset about the new Lego for girls? <laughs> well, um, the. Lego has, uh, Lego has, I've lo I love Lego. I mean, I've, you know, I'm 40 and I remember getting my very first Lego set when I was probably five. And so I've grown up loving Lego. My son has grown up loving Lego. I'm now buying Lego for nieces and nephews. Um, and when I heard that Lego was making sets for girls, my first response was, wait, that's Lego. Like, you know the bricks that you build <laughs> that that's for girls too um but you know lego has 
But the fact of the matter is Lego has really gone sort of, Lego has become a very gendered toy. Um, and it isn't sort of that boys, you know, boys build and girls play with dolls. Um, the, the, the sets that Lego's producing right now are very warlike. Um, there's ninjas, there's, um, you know, rockets, there's space battles, there's pirates, there's knights in castles. Um, and I, I think that it's, uh, Lego isn't really for everyone, the way in which, way in which I wish it was. Um, Lego's done a lot of research. They've made some new sets in order to actually go after that girl market. Um, they've made the dolls, the dolls a little bit taller and very curvy, and they have painted smiling faces, not just the sort of the two, you know, the two dots for an eyes uh, that, the, that the little minifigs have. Um, and their little sets, <laughs> and their little sets of, of girls, a little girl that's a beautician and a little girl that's a vet, and there is a girl that's an inventor. Um, and they're, they're pink and pastel colored. And uh, <laughs> I just felt this, this made me a little sad. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, in the combination of sort of cultural and cognitive science. I remember thinking when I graduated from college in the early 1980s that we had really finally overcome the, um, the, the women's issues, right? To then watch Britney Spears for the next 20 years <laughs> just drive us back down to the same drain. Um, so I've decided that if I want my boy children to go to college, I'll have them play with a girl Lego set, right? <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, like, I think it's, I, I think that it's interesting to sort of see Lego, Lego talked a lot of, has been talking about some other research that they've done. And, and I would, you know, I think that Lego's, Lego's right, that girls, girls do prefer pink, um, the pink, pink doll-like toys. But I think it's so, it's part of such a larger cultural issue, um, and I just, it just concerns me that once we start giving sort of, again, the, it seems like we're, that Legos falling into the trap again, that boys build with their Legos and that girls play, play dolls with their Legos. And if indeed Lego is this great path to getting students to thinking seriously about STEM careers, which the Lego first robotics is a stellar program in that stead. If, you know, if I worry that, that those, those new sets for girls aren't going to be the kind of thing that that makes a young girl say, yeah, I think I would like to build with Legos. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe, maybe it will. Okay. So we'll leave that one because <laughs> it's going to come up again. Okay. So a trillion dollar spending bill, but no money for ed tech. Yeah. I mean, I... I think that the that the um, and money and money lots more money for race to the top. So the the, the Obama administration sort of signature um, education funding contest um, did get did get more money, but no 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 money. Um, the one of the education technology programs actually was cut last year, and no but no specific line item in the budget for ed tech. I I don't know if that's necessarily. Um, a, I think that makes a, an interesting headline. Um, I don't think that it means that the current administration is sort of anti-technology, um, but I certainly it certainly does raise questions about where the priorities are in terms of the technology in the classroom is certainly going to be used for more standardized testing. It's probably not going to be used for the innovative things that the ARPA Ed Agency was talking about. 
I appreciated the control that you must have exerted to not place the cheating scandal story right <laughs> below that story. The self-control of separating them. Another Georgia cheating scandal. Another cheating scandal. And I think that we're, I mean, I really, I think we're only going to see more, more cheating scandals. I mean, we, you and I have talked about this several times, all of the factors that, in place, that are in place right now to encourage just this, just this sort of behavior. Um, so I think that as long as, as long as sort of your local education journalist is going to be looking for these sorts of things, I bet we turn up a lot more of these in the new year. Yeah, the, I read the Washington Post story and I was fascinated by it. <clears throat> One of the lessons they claimed was that schools shouldn't be responsible for policing themselves, meaning they should have other policing bodies, uh, which kind of stunned me just in and of itself. But how do we get so far off base here? Uh, they claim a failure of leadership by the principals and administrators. And I thought, well, it is a failure of leadership, but it's not, I mean, and it is a failure of leadership at that level. But that is that the kind of leadership we should be asking for? And is it a failure of leadership at an even higher level? Right. I mean, and I, is it, you know, I mean, I think that, I think, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were thinking about the, the local, um, the local school board member that took his, um, took his state test. I mean, I think that, there's a failure of leadership in terms of sort of almost every adult as well to not not be asking more questions about really the path that we're going down when when what we talk about in terms of um, students uh, you know the way in which our students are spending time in classroom is so so much revolves around these tests. I saw someone someone tweeted the other day that they're I think that they tweeted that their eight-year-old was spending three hours taking finals this week. Uh-huh. <laughs> what? What do you? Third grade has finals now. Boy, crazy. Okay, tutor spree. Uh, it reminded me that I haven't really tracked the tutoring market, but there's for a long time been a paid tutoring market online. How are these services doing? Yeah, I think that the the tutoring market is. I think that the tutoring market, the Better Business Bureau, um, uh, constantly rates uh, the tutoring companies and some of the well known tutoring companies, you know, with D's or F's. To the tutoring market, online and offline, I think is is pretty um, is pretty poor. Uh, there's some interesting movements in both areas. Tutor Spree is actually more like a. I would say it's almost more like a well, uh, sort of, a, it's almost like, it's like Craigslist with better profiles. I mean, this is for offline tutoring, helping people match people in their local communities with more reputable tutors. Um, so it doesn't actually, it's, um, oh, interesting. it's not, I wouldn't say that it's, um, terribly disruptive or interesting, but I think that, I do think that in general, there's probably a lot of cleaning up to do in terms of tutoring, particularly online. Google Books can be now read offline. Are these the copyrighted books or the ones you buy or the public domain ones? Which, which books can you now read offline? Um, these are uh, the, the ones, through, ones through Google eBooks, so it would be either ones that you purchase from them um, and read through their web-based uh, reader or some of, the, uh, some of the public domain ones as well. So it's just one of these innovations, thanks to HTML5, that allows for um, offline reading. Gotcha. But it doesn't mean you're going to be able to read offline those books that are where you just see the snippets. Correct. That are still 
protected. Correct. Um, and one laptop per child still chugging along. I didn't know that. <laughs> it's still chugging along. And it's it's interesting, you know, back to the top, the, the my choice for top startups of the year. I mean, I think that we're definitely, re- we're seeing a, several interesting um, pieces of technology that are bringing the costs down lower and lower that I have to wonder at what point one laptop per child is going to sort of be beaten to the punch by some of these other um, these other other companies and other technologies, but the latest the latest version of the of the laptop just passed the FCC, um, and I believe that they're going to start um, start, start distributing them soon. Yeah, I was reminded of just sort of how significantly my sh- thinking shifted on this issue when I sat next to this guy on an airplane who works for Amazon and he was talking about providing Kindles in low-income villages. Mm -hmm. And I thought how much simpler a solution that is and how much more impactful it probably is. I I don't know that that's actually accurate, but the idea of having a a school have a repository of potentially thousands of books in these devices felt to me like it might even be more valuable than the laptops and surprised me. Yeah, I think that the the this latest um, this latest Exo laptop has the hand cranked power, uh, which is an interesting development uh, too. And I mean, I think that that's one of the problems that even you know even the Kindle with it with its great battery life. I mean, at some point you have to charge these devices, mm. and so are we going to be able to lower the power, the computing power, to such a point where they can be you know recharged through solar? Oh. Interesting. Uh, you mentioned an Android quiz and poll app, and mm-hmm. I couldn't find it uh, in my app marketplace. Is this a Google product? It is a Google product, but that's <laughs> the Android marketplace um, is such a wonderfully um, <laughs> disorganized. <laughs> Could you please just allow me to sort the results based on number of downloads and popularity? I mean, I hello? You would think for a company that sort of likes to boast that it's good at search, that um, that it wouldn't be such a complete and utter um, nightmare to search through its its app marketplace. Yeah, this is this is a this is the tool that Google has built internally. But you know, honestly, I didn't even look to see if it was easily uh, easily findable. I didn't do anything more than just search my marketplace because I thought, wow, this is terrific. I mean, a, you know, a polling a response app for school in an Android phone mm-hmm. could have a pretty significant impact. Right. But I couldn't find it. Well, <laughs> I hope we will. Hey, any follow-up to that K-12 story? I haven't heard anything else about it. Have you? No. In fact, I bookmarked the site so I could read it because I uh, I wanted to read all 300 and some comments. <laughs> and of course, th- that's been so imposing that I haven't actually gotten to reading it. <laughs> you know, the, the, sort of the opposite, the, the thing that always happens to me is the more important the story, the, the, the less I actually pay attention because of the time involved. But um, no, I, I didn't know if there was anything more that I had happened. I haven't heard anything, no. So on a, sort of our final note, you managed to somehow bring football back in. I did. I did. I couldn't help with this one, particularly since it was research based out of uh, my alma mater here at the University of Oregon. Um, three uh, psychology researchers found something that I think shocks no one, that the better a college football team does, the lower the male GPA is. It actually did surprise me. Oh, did it? And I'll tell you why. Because I've always had this theory that uh, the sort of 
aggregate psyche of a university is largely impacted by how their sports teams do. And I kind of thought that if your team is losing, that everybody would kind of get depressed and that that might actually have an impact. But this shows I'm wrong. <laughs> well, this is, this, this is sort of, I often, I talk a lot about sort of my experience teaching at the University of Oregon and the sort of the way in which I saw, I saw things change um, after the, the school started to become more of a powerhouse uh, in football. And so I've always felt anecdotally that uh, I felt that students were, uh, students' uh, grades were going down. But here we go. Is it the partying? Yes, it is the partying. It is the partying. Audrey, <laughs> thanks again for a terrific week of stories. Again, your, your um, insight is so helpful, and I appreciate that you take the time to do this. Well, thanks. It's been fun. So... I guess we'll t- we're taking next week off, but we'll have uh, stuff in the new year. Predictions. And- happy, happy holidays. <laughs> Likewise.